Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who was clearly meant to be played by Toshiro Mifune. <laughs> uh, as it turns out, I wasn't meant to be played by Toshiro Mifune, but I was meant to be played by a different person who was playing me. I'm the Adam Glass, and the role was originally written for Takashi Shimura. Okay, okay. But, like, it's so... Eh, we'll get into it during the podcast, like during the main main part of the podcast. But I just yeah. feel like I feel like maybe Kurosawa can't help himself. Okay, and well, writes yeah, all one... main characters as Toshiro Mifune, even though they hadn't worked together <laughs> in like a decade or something like that. Yeah, after the falling out of Redbeard, they never worked together again. Uh, and Redbeard was what? Well, let's let's say this: we've got Donovan Hill with us for this episode. Donovan, do you remember when Redbeard came out? <laughs> oh, ouch. Put you on the spot right away. No, 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 Redbeard. That's Redbeard was right? no, Redbeard was early, much earlier than that. Oh, I, good news! Type you might be thinking of Rand. Nineteen sixty-five. Nineteen sixty-five. There we go. So fifteen years prior to this. Uh, so yes, possible. But he did write this for his other longest time collaborator. Uh, but Takashi Shimura. Takashi Shimura is always such a, to my mind, and this is probably the result of what I've seen him in, such a yeah. much more like contemplative figure in his parts yeah. usually. That like the idea of him playing playing this really vulgar, outspoken person doesn't match to me. <laughs> Just beyond you, yeah. Like, but like that's um, but that is exactly what Mifune always did, and so I can't but feel like. Kurosawa's writing for a person he doesn't work with anymore. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, that's that's quite possibly true. Um, do you think that uh, Shimura was a contemplative character in Godzilla? Because I don't actually remember his character in Godzilla. Isn't he, though? I, I don't remember either, but I kind of think he is. Does, it, does uh, he not play one of the scientists? Oh, he does. Yeah, he plays one of the scientists. Who the are, like, in the original so. Godzilla... Because the the original Godzilla is not supposed to be just a goofy like monster movie. Yeah. It's supposed to be a commentary on nuclear war. Like the, the, the scientists are, are oftentimes the voice of reason in Godzilla movies. Yeah. So. And then he came back for Godzilla Raids again. Oh, did, did he? Yeah. Or the actual Japanese tri- title, uh, English translation, Counterattack of Godzilla, which I actually like better. Yeah, it's a better name. Yeah. Anyway. That was the first sequel to to Godzilla, as it turns out. But enough about people who aren't in this movie and other movies they work in. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about exclusively people who are not in this film. No, actually, he is in this movie, but only in the Criterion cut. Was he? Yeah. Uh, I definitely watched the Criterion Shimuro, cut, don't get me wrong. I just don't remember. <laughs> Shimuro plays... Uh, it's, it's almost a cameo. It's so small. Uh, he plays the Japanese... Uh, assistant who shows up with the Western doctor slash priest. Oh, does he? Oh man, that is a cameo. Yeah. He is super old. Um, uh, but yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that uh, that was that scene is part of the twenty minutes cut for the original American release of this, which was the only DVD release available in the U.S. until the Criterion came out. 
Hey, Pat, did you know we have a Patreon? I did. You told me one time. I know. I know. I need to figure out another way to say no, ways to talk fine. about the Patreon totally than asking fine. if you've heard about it. Uh, some other people who have heard about it include uh, Jason Westhaver and Adam Speakerman, who are both giving us $5 a month, which means that we have to say their name and thank them on air at least once a month, but there's only two of them, so we're thanking them every episode. Yeah. Well, it's actually, it's hey, actually proving guys. to be the easiest way to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our Patreon is patreon.com slash Criterion. And if you support us there, you get access to a monthly bonus episode, uh, and you get to vote uh, on what movie we're going to do for that monthly bonus episode. And some of them are fun, and some of them, well, they're all fun, but some of them are more uh, zany fun, and some of them are more movies that probably should be in the Criterion Collection, but (laughs) aren't. Um, So we've talked about Aliens, we've talked about uh, Critters 2, we've talked about the Americanization of Emily... Uh, We talked about the original Red Dawn, and we did Dog Day Afternoon, uh, and uh, we haven't quite recorded it yet, but by the time this episode airs, uh, our most recent one should be uh, the 1980s children's horror comedy, The Monster Squad. (laughs) Oh, boy. So so that'll be fun. Uh, But yeah, uh, we thank Adam and Jason for their support. Thank you. We appreciate it. Glad they accept any more support. It goes to diffusing our costs, and uh, if we diffuse enough of those costs, we'll get a little better hosting, because our current hosting is a little lacking. Yeah, 99 uh, episodes out of 260 or whatever is pretty pretty poor. Is all it sends to the RSS feed, which means it's all it sends not only to iTunes, but any any uh, other... Yeah. Uh, and Now, mind you, the first few episodes were terrible. But it would be nice. Yeah, but I think they get good around somewhere around the forty or fifty mark, and it'd be nice for people to like, actually be able to listen to those. Like many podcasts, uh, not listening to the first fifty episodes is probably a good way to go. Yeah, no, for <laughs> sure, for sure, you'll be better off that way. This week, though, we are talking about Kage Musha. Did I say that right? You did great, Adam. We're really proud of Thank you. Thank you. I'm very proud of myself. The 1980 film. Adam, you, Adam, you, you, Kage nailed it. How about that? <laughs> ah, I shadow nailed it. That's a real, yeah, that's a real Japanese word. Nailed it? <laughs> totally. Kage totally. nailed it. To shadow nail something. The um, 1980 film by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, we've got our resident Kurosawa expert, I'll call you. Uh, sure. That's my that's my business card Our Kurosawa correspondent. <laughs> resident, no matter where I go, I'm the resident Kurosawa guy. Yeah. Uh, Donovan Hill joining us. Uh, Donovan, always always a pleasure to have you on. Sorry we haven't had you on in so long. It's been a it's while also, since we've done a Kurosawa film. It's also true. Uh, it'll be a while, I believe, until we do another. I could be wrong on this. We should start bringing I him in for things that are not Kurosawa. How about that? Probably. I think our next Kurosawa might be Ran. Well, I'm looking um, forward to that, but it's probably... Wonder where that is. It is. It is one year from now. Okay. Well, Uh, almost exactly. Not as bad as I thought. It is actually. It is forty nine spines from now. So we'll be hitting it probably late November next year. So not too bad, Uh, especially considering Kurosawa considered this film a draw run for that. Isn't that nice? Interesting. Now we'll get to watch it soon. Um, (laughs) Though to be fair. Uh, this was kind of a dry run for a lot of things because it was the first movie he'd made in five years. Uh, 
if not longer. Well, yeah, but keep, keep in mind, Dry Run for only about four. You know, he doesn't do a lot of movies after this, though. Yeah, like no, he he's doesn't. Only got four more uh, after this. So. Basically, uh, what happened was uh, after Redbeard uh, and the personal disaster that Redbeard was because of the falling out with Mafune and uh, basically just all the stress of that. Uh, then he had a couple of bombs um, and started his own with with Kanu Chihuahua and a couple other Japanese directors. They started their own production company, so they left Toho. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mainstream uh film industry in japan did not react kindly to that no they are uh, they are gangsters so yeah so um so that was kind of a thing uh then he made uh or attempted to make tora 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 in the u.s uh and that uh i think he ended up leaving the production on i'm i'm, I'm sure uh, he discovered that american uh, production companies were even worse yeah. Uh, from that, he got basically blacklisted internationally as someone who couldn't be worked with uh, because he didn't deal well with the American production co- company. Uh, so it wasn't until, I think, 75 when he went to Russia uh, and made... Oh, what was the name of that movie? I, I don't... Oh, 75, it says Derusa Uzara. Yeah. All the president's men. <laughs> yes. I don't know anything yes, about the Kurosawa Russian classic. All the president's men. Uh, yeah, this is this was made in Russia. God, this is weird. Yeah. Uh, well, we talked we talked briefly about this oh. in the episode about Solaris because it was during this trip to Russia that he uh, he met. Uh, Tarkovsky and they hung out for a little bit. Yeah, and then Tarkovsky decided that Japan just looked like the future somehow. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, which is how he ended up shooting parts of uh, Solaris in Tokyo as, as the future city. Uh, but yeah, so he made that film with Moss Film, uh, you know, the Soviet national film. And that actually had a lot of good international note. It won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Picture. Did it? Um, I believe we will eventually watch it, but it is much further away than Ran. Um, But yeah, so that put him kind of back. But at the same time, Toho had lost all money. Toho had no money to invest in anything. No one in Japan wanted to work with him. He convinced Toho to work with him. But they didn't have the funds to actually finish this movie that had kind of been ballooning. He first had the idea to do Kagemusha, or Kagemusha, uh, while working on Redbeard. He started thinking of, of other things. And one of, one of the ideas that floated around was he'd done, uh, he'd had so much regard and, and enjoyed doing his version of Macbeth, Thorn of Blood, and his version of Hamlet. Uh, was that the. The bad sleep calmly. What is the? Oh, I don't know what the bad sleep well. The bad, the bad sleep, sleep well. well. Yeah. yeah. Um. That he kind of wanted to do a version of King Lear, and that's one thing that led to this. And this isn't really. It's got some Lear themes, but it's Little not bad. nearly as. Well, power and and. Well, yeah, I mean themes, but I mean like 
Yeah. Not like... But it's not... It's not it's an not adaptation plot. of King Lear. Yeah, it's not an adaptation of King Lear. It's more an adaptation of The Prince and the Pauper than anything. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, a really fucked up one, um, yeah. <laughs> well, The Prince and the Pauper meets King Lear, and that's kind of what okay. we have. Um, uh, anyway, so he'd been working on this for a while, and then he'd really put his mind to it starting in, like, 75, and uh, wasn't getting the funding. Toho didn't have the money... Uh, so basically he spent every day just painting and kind of like storyboarding because he had always done all his own storyboards. He'd been a painter since his youth. Uh, he'd only entered the film industry one after the death of his brother who was in the film industry and B because the, uh, government at that time was cracking down on artists and liberal writers. Uh, so he went into film, which apparently the government wasn't worried about being liberal. Uh, yeah, that's how Japan right. is very different than America, apparently. <laughs> uh, at least at that time. Um, so he'd been like painting storyboards for this forever and getting more and more depressed uh, over the course of painting the storyboards. Uh, and I think all of that shows in the final work. <laughs> um, uh, but ultimately, uh, George Lucas is Francis Ford Coppola heard and were stunned that Kurosawa wasn't getting funding for this movie. Let's pause for a minute for, so we can all just like soak in that there was a time where people said George Lucas and Kurosawa and Coppola in the same <laughs> in breath the same without, without like <laughs> horrific <laughs> irony. Yeah. Without having a, a quick chuckle at the end like we do now. <laughs> yeah. Without being like, well, one of these is not uh, like the others. A sensible chortle. Not one of these had not been like, like bought out by Disney and then promptly dismissed from his entire universe. Yes. Well, when you uh, think yeah. about it, like, anyway, like uh, well, I mean, we've talked about this before, but when you look at like you know the original Star Wars, you get really close. You, it really just—it's amazing how one man can go so far off the rails of his own sort of vision. It's weird. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna make seven samurai or something like that in space, and then like twenty years down the line, I'm gonna make a children's movie. Essentially, yeah, or um, the Hidden Fortress. Yeah, it is the Hidden Fortress. Yeah, I yeah, think it is. But, the Hidden Fortress. I mean, it, it has the the feel of most of those anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It is uh, the Hidden Fortress makes a lot of sense. Anyway, uh, at the time, the early '80s, obviously Coppola and Lucas had. Uh, Hell of a lot of clout. And um, money. And money. Hysterical, but yes. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, so they convinced 20th Century Fox to put up the money for the rest of the film. Uh, and as such, are listed as executive producers on the international release. I didn't realize that's all it took to become a executive producer that's basically what that means executive producer is, is i had some uh, i had a bunch point, of money <laughs> somehow funded uh yeah but basically uh they did visit the set God, um, that was a fucking nightmare coppola uh according to wikipedia appeared with kurosawa in a series of suntory whiskey commercials yeah that, that, that helped makes finance sense. the film i'm sure that I'm, in fact, I'm going to go on the internet now. <laughs> what? What a threat! <laughs> oh yeah, well I'm going on the internet. 
I say that. according and, to, according to Wikipedia, not to suggest that they don't exist, but to suggest that. Uh, no, I just this Wikipedia is a thing I need to see that, now. Like, that this is a thing that like I need to see. Well, they're on YouTube, so that's good. I'll have to watch these later. Oh, I'm sure they. Are. His last wow, film it is just was two old was dudes. Right? It's just two old dudes with sunglasses on. <laughs> the classic, the classic Kurosawa. This is a series. nightmare. Yeah, no, it doesn't even look like Kurosawa. It's pitiful. Aww. He's not in any of his normal getup. That is the. Was Ron his last film? No, he made a few after that. Is, does it? That was the last big one. The last big yeah. period piece. Uh, Dream. Uh, it was definitely the last. Period Ron was. Thing, so. Ron was the last big period piece, I think. Uh, he did. Uh, Dreams came after that, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Dreams was, was 1990. Uh, then Rhapsody in, what is it, August? Uh, yeah, Rhapsody in August uh, in 91. And then Ma'adadayo? Uh, I'm not reading There's too the, many A's in this. What? M-A-A-D-A-D-A-Y-O. I can't... I. Yeah, you read it to me, and I didn't. I didn't process it. So, <laughs> um, nonetheless, it looks. Uh, it looks like it might be like a comedy. Yeah, maybe. Um, following World War II, a retired professor approaching his autumn years finds his quality of life drastically reduced in Bo- uh, in war torn <laughs> Tokyo. Maradayo, Den- which means like, still, it's still going. Don't oh. you know? Like yo would be oh. like, yo, yo is. Like an informative statement, and, okay. and a thing that goes at the end of an informative statement. It's like it's like imagine a uh, like don't you know at the end of a sentence. Okay. So it's like okay. still it's still don't you know. It's kind of it's. So it, it I said I said yet, but I'm looking unrelated. At... Pat, have you ever read? Uh, God, what is it called? Like Kawaii Kochan's webcomic? No. I will. We'll talk about okay. that later because <laughs> we really, you really need to get on that train immediately. Since, as a person who has to translate between the two languages for a living, reading a web comic that is intentionally a horrific, directly literal oh, translation God. from Japanese to English oh, 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 oh. Uh, at all times is, uh, including my personal favorite, Nani Heck. Uh, what? So, <laughs> all right, we'll have to talk about this later because this sounds really interesting yeah. to me. So. It's yeah, it's right up your alley. But uh, anyway, anyway, I I said this film looks like a comedy because the Japanese poster no, uh, it's is, is yeah, it says comedy like a drama. crayon drawing of a man standing on a table, uh, surrounded by a crowd of people. Whereas uh, the uh, American release versions are a man in silhouette staring at the sunset. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that so. checks out. Uh, so it could go either way. <laughs> anyway, that was that was Kurosawa's last last film. Um, but yeah, so he doesn't work a lot after this. Uh, we've got five films after this, right? Uh, but but keep in mind that like we didn't do them in chronological order. Or so I assume we have we have five more Criterion. On the criteria. Oh, we've got. Period. We've got a lot. That's what of I thought. I was like, we haven't gone through this. nearly this entire filmography, and I assume every <laughs> single one is in this, in the fucking Criterion collection, basically somewhere. Yeah, we've uh, we've got a big, big set. Uh, yeah, 
I'm just just looking at the Kurosawa page. I think the first yeah. six listed are ones we haven't watched yet. Yeah, uh, so there you go. We've still got his his version of the idiot to watch. We've still got uh, the bad sleep well. We'll eventually watch mm-hmm. uh, the bad sleep well. Is excellent, I'm looking by forward the way. to it. I've never seen it. I'm sure it is. His I don't his I don't like at this point. Right? I don't like the idea of ruining these episodes by yeah. watching it before we record it, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of a little bit like. It's it's a it's a it's a kind of a good thing and a bad thing at the same time because I do well, like having my first experience be talking to you guys about it, but at the same time, it sucks waiting a long time. Yeah, but we will watch all four of the movies he made after this. Uh, I think no, we won't watch uh, the August one. <laughs> His name already escapes me. Uh, Rhapsody oh, and all Rhapsody this. And all. We won't watch that one? It has we'll Richard Gere in it. That one. All the more reason not to watch it. <laughs> I've become very curious about it, though, because of how insane the description of it seems to be. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it doesn't look like that one will pop up, but we will. We will. We still have a lot of Kurosawa to watch, uh, which is good because we love Kurosawa. And, and we like having Donovan on episodes, so. And we like having Donovan on, yeah. Uh, so like I said, this was meant as sort of his version of Lear in its very early, early stages, uh, and grew into a lot of other things. Yeah, like, I would have to in say... In the course like, of his depression. <laughs> I, I, like, like I, this is considered, as far as I could tell, a masterpiece. And yeah. I get that, but it is probably one of my least favorite Kurosawa films we've watched. It is one of the ones that is sort of, in my opinion, of his period pieces. It is rare in that it is one that is alternate, not alternate history, but is one of the few times he directly injects his story into actual historical events. Right, exactly. All, most not of the times that, his take place in a nebulous time somewhere in, uh, in yeah, you know, his, yeah, the Tokugawa era or something the, like that. Or, or the Sengoku yeah, exactly. Jedi or something like that. Yeah, it is. It's always somewhere during... You know the the age of the samurai is this story. So without really nailing it down, whereas this like directly like the final scene obviously is part of a very famous historical battle. Right. I guess the opening of Musashi is uh, Sakigahara. So I guess he's he does it from right, time but to that's time, a little but bit different because it, because they open that way, it really is, and because that's a. Yeah. Well, I wasn't. That's not him. He's not the guy that did Musashi. Now that I think about it. Well, there you go. That's Mifune. It's Mifune. Right. It's Mifune, but not Kurosawa. Uh, uh, you're right. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's it's rare for him to directly anchor his film to a to reality like that. For good or for well, real, and I and guess. I and see, um, and I and I think that's probably part of my problem is that um, it it doesn't. I, it, it, beyond that, I mean, I don't know. It just has a weird... It has a different vibe than his normal samurai pieces do to me. I, I have trouble articulating it in words. It just doesn't... It, it is... I mean, none of his samurai films are ever, like, action-packed or anything like that. No, but, I but think that's... But this, this is... Has just, I don't know. It has a... 
I, I, I'm going to think about it and I'll figure out how to describe the difference. <laughs> I, it, it's really a hard thing to describe. I kept thinking about it while I was watching it too. Is it? It might just be part of it is probably that it's in color, and I'm just not used to Kurosawa in color. But, yeah. But beyond that, like, Ron is very jarring to me. It remains jarring to me for the same reason, uh, which is weird because even when I first saw it as a kid. Uh, when it was like, I don't know, like the second or third Kurosawa film I'd ever seen. So I didn't really have a huge body of work upon which to compare it to against. Even then, you were like, Ron wait a minute, this isn't was right. This, was a surreal, weird, jarring thing to me. Yeah. Um, also, it was way too long for <laughs> a seven-year-old, but... Well, this is our... This isn't his first color film, but it is our first encounter with it, him doing yeah, color and, films. And, and that is a big thing, but but it is something beyond color. It, it, it's not just the color. The color probably makes it worse and more noticeable yeah. because I think part of it might be that he's... I mean, he does good use with the color here. I mean, the colors are nice. They're well done. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's so good with black and white that it, it, it is still clear that, like... I would rather watch his black and white work. That there's just no way around that. Uh, but it's it's something beyond color. There's a, a certain it, it it feels like a much like kind of like a much older person and this would be true because of the time period, but like you know it it lacks some of the positive like as weird as it sounds, Kurosawa films have a a certain kind of positivity to them. I feel like, and this doesn't. You don't find that here? Not as much. Especially not with the ending the way it is. At least, uh, at least in our other Kurosawa films, the hero walks away at the end. Well, and... Uh, uh, that's I think not that's entirely debatable. No, no, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, talking about the hero like surviving. Like life is not what makes it positive. What makes it okay. positive is the the mission and purpose that the people in the movies typically set themselves to. That being said, like Rashomon is not a positive film per se, but it does have an no. interesting thing to say. It is. It I was going to say Seven Samurai intentionally ends on something of a. A downer too. Well, well, a, yeah, a bittersweet. Right. Mixed well, that, but that's, about... but that, uh, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's not positivity, as in like, oh, everybody survived yeah. and everybody's happy. It is a a positivity of mission or statement. Uh, that being yeah. said, R- Rashomon doesn't exactly end positively or even have a positive message, other than like, hey, perspectives, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> That being said, do not you know, don't trust. Yeah, the the moral, the positive moral upbeat of Rashomon. Trust no one. Right, exactly. Everyone is lying. Right. I don't. It's well, hard to explain. Like I don't. I don't. Well, part of it is probably I don't know what the message of this movie is. <laughs> it's crazy that Rashomon was written when it was because it is the it is like a perfect Cold War era allegory. Uh, yeah. I mean, given the nature of Kurosawa, that probably was on purpose. I was going to say. I, all right. Uh, Try to follow anyway. me here for a second, okay? I'm all right. Hit me, Adam. All right. We we just recently spent way way more time than we needed to with Fanny and Alexander, a late period Bergman piece. Yeah, uh, which is Bergman as an older man. One of his final works, uh, what he intended to be his final theatrical release. They couldn't control uh, himself. 
going back and playing with themes he'd played with before but had sort of come to terms with and doing this big epic thing that sort of encapsulated a lot of work that he'd done throughout his life, a lot of what he was known for having done, talking about God and about uh, the metaphysical nature of reality and and, uh, the mysteries of life. Uh, Here... We have Kurosawa in the same way, looking back at what he's famous for, these historical samurai epics, uh, and looking at themes that he's played with, the nature of reality, and and uh, like Rashomon, what truth is, and what that means, and whether or not a man pretending to be the Lord is the Lord. You know. Yeah, I mean, and I get that, and that does make sense. That is a that is a definitely a takeaway you can get from this that I think is true. I just don't. I mean, like if I had to compare late period pieces between Bergman and uh, and Kurosawa, like Bergman did a better job with the sort of rehashing of his own yeah, themes than I don't. Than Kurosawa I don't want to bring here. that up. To, to, I don't want to get bogged down in that conversation because I do agree with you. But uh, um, I just I just think there's. I can see what Kurosawa's trying to do here. And understanding that he spent the better part of a decade trying to get this movie made uh, and getting more depressed about it not being made, I think the final product uh, reflects that. Yeah, and uh, I, I would agree that that, that... And that is probably the biggest thing, is that the reflection, as you were saying, of a certain amount of depression. The movie yeah. doesn't feel as... Weird as it sounds, as upbeat as like in the yeah. pacing or anything, and that like and that's saying something considering that like most Kurosawa films are eighteen thousand minutes long. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel hours, hours. At, oh, sorry, at, sorry, at hours, hours, sorry, yeah, my bad. Hours. It doesn't feel as like it doesn't move at the same high paced clip as other <laughs> Kurosawa films. Like, I don't know. It's just a weird... It gives me... This movie, right from the beginning when I was watching, I was like... This doesn't, to me, feel as much like a Kurosawa film as the other Kurosawa films that we've watched. Including, but not limited to, the ones that are not period pieces. Yeah. Like, I... You know, we at this point, I include the, all, you know, things like high and low and things like that in that discussion and he always has really powerful things to say and he is trying to make a statement here obviously about like what you know is is you know this kind of reflection the same thing as the reality like the real thing but i don't feel like maybe also i don't feel like he's making that statement as forcefully as he normally would in most of his previous films like probably not in in most of the films i'm thinking about his his message is usually like a big punch in the face. He's like, "All right, here <laughs> yeah. is bam, what we're talking about, bam today, bam right in the face." And this one just doesn't have the same sort of aggressiveness about its message. Yeah. And and maybe understanding this as starting as an adaptation of Lear, I can pick up more subtly, or maybe I'm reading into stuff that isn't there about the nature of power and obsession. Right, and, and and I, but I would generally agree with you that you're you're probably on a on the right track in the sense that that's probably is where he was starting. What you know what I mean? Like in the sense that like that's yeah. in his mind was like, but like 
And we do get into some of that stuff, but it's very clear that he derailed himself pretty far. <laughs> Maybe. Well, he also has to, uh, in making this a very, very, very close branching alternative history, he's still got to. Well, and, and I think that, and I really think that's probably nature getting back events. to what Donovan was saying. I think that's a big part yeah. of the problem. Is that yeah. it needs to fit into Japanese history without rewriting Japanese history. Yeah, you're getting some to whatever the name of that. Uh, what's the name of that alternative historian? Turtle Dev. What's his first name? <laughs> oh, Harry. Yeah, like you're getting into some Harry of that Turtle kind Dev. of stuff where you're like, oh, well, I still need it to like work inside of what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Um, and and I think that is a is a problem, right? Because we're dealing with literally clans that existed and literally events yeah. that did happen, and like we can't rewrite history, like yeah. And that's not always a problem. Whereas with that. we like, could have rewritten history, is the thing. Well, <laughs> he could have, but he, he we can deal with real people, it, yeah, and tell a different story. But but he's decided to end on a historical battle that historically ended the way this one ends yeah. everybody dead so yeah it, it was a bad day for our pals the Takeda yeah. uh, to be sure so so we're dealing with the fall of the Takeda uh, clan which I mean and... let's be fair they were screwed right from the beginning because they are surrounded by literally everybody else who wins in the end so <laughs> yeah it was a bad they did not roll well on their randomly determined starting no they did not Uh, yeah (laughs) um which means uh shingen himself is is very leer like in reality too any any amount of power he might have hoped for is is a completely uh misplaced dream comically illusory (laughs) you might say yeah um uh, yeah. It goes. It goes bad for him. Uh, he was. He's kind of an interesting guy in that there is a lot of. Uh, there's a lot written about Shingen specifically, uh, yeah. and he is a even in other fictional stories set during this time period. He is a he's a popular character to have show up uh, because he was. Uh, personally charismatic and obviously a very dynamic, aggressive military leader uh, whose, you know, big cavalry charges were a, you know, historical, uh, I, I don't know how to phrase this, Pat, like a trait, I guess, yeah, of his I mean, plan like, and his style of warfare. Right, and, and, but, they all, but then they ran into guns and they were like, well, well and, and, and then that and, was it and, for and the I Takeda. I think part is that Shingen has become a, has become a sort of short, a sort of, historical shorthand for oh shit and then there were guns yeah <laughs> like i yeah it was a it's a he's a he's a singular person who can encapsulate the notion of uh the grand traditions of japanese military strategy and military uh like martial arts and tradition and the you know all the history and culture wrapped up with his clan and uh, cavalry and everything else instantly being annihilated by the Western introduction of guns and also is kind of a shorthand for 
here is where Nobunaga Oda was willing to just completely discard the entire Japanese. Well, and that's it. And it's a like, really like okay, we're gonna get this. Is, this shit's gonna get really crazy real pr- pretty soon here. But like, we get into a really complicated series of events that occur, right? Because uh, Nobunaga, in order to get guns, had to make a deal with the devil, which is epitomized the Dutch. In, well, in this, in, we're talking about the Portuguese right now. <laughs> the deal is the Portuguese right now. The Portuguese, and, uh, which is, Portuguese. And, and the reason is they deal with the devil, which is gonna, which is a hilarious phrase to use, is because in order to get done, you had to Christians take Christianity in. as well. You, you got both yep. of them at the same time, and so no, yeah. I'm, I'm inclined to agree that in fact it was the devil. well, and so and then so we, which leads us directly to the final result, which is is uh, Tokugawa saying fuck that nonsense and kicking everybody out. Uh, Smart and and so you go through this evolution. The way that Japan was unified was via the use, in many ways, via the use of guns. But then the the result of that unification was the exact opposite of what essentially these these colonists wanted. You know, because that's where they were headed, right? They wanted to do the same thing to Japan that they had done to um, you know China and, and those other places, which is like this is going to be essentially our place now. Uh, and you guys are just what, going what to he work should have done him. was uh, as if, if only he had played uh, late '90s PC game uh, Total War Shogun, he would know you always hold out for the Dutch, who will give you guns without mandatory Christianity as an attachment. Well, exactly. And then you get all the perks. Well, and that, but that's God, the interesting just, thing, right? Is that like the the Dutch didn't have that requirement, but the Dutch come along much later after the Tokugawa Shogun. It's already yeah. been established, and so. It's already at this point, like, shit's done, right? And they've kicked the, the Portuguese out. And the easiest way to kick the Portuguese out was, well, we're just going to start murder, murdering Portuguese until you leave. Yeah. As it turns out, the easiest way to kick them out was to uh, make sure there were none. Yeah. Left. Well, that was the situation. It was like, you're going to get on this boat or you're going to stay here forever. And then they arched their fingers over top of the table. Uh, <laughs> is is kind of what they pulled. But it's just, it is a fast. Shingen makes a, is a very easy shorthand for that process in many ways, right? Like, we're going to use this tool that we got from the devil in order to win this, and then everybody, every Japanese person knows that immediately that turns around and goes, like, it does a 180, like, overnight. Comically sideways, uh, yeah. And that, and that's the funny thing, is I think part of the problem with this movie, from a, an, another perspective, is that that makes an assumption, which is, Accurate, which is every Japanese person knows all this. Yeah. Like, every Japanese person who will ever watch this movie knows everything we're saying right now. Okay? Has studied this in history class. Now, did they pay attention? Japanese students tend to not like history class, so maybe they didn't. But they probably have gone through it almost every year since they were, like, th- third grade or something like that. Okay? So they probably have picked up generally some uh, the basic outlines of all that history. Whereas... Any Westerner watching it is going to be like, I don't. This it doesn't mean as much to them. You know what I mean? It doesn't have the same cultural impact of like, oh, I know where this is headed. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's it, a, it loses a little it's bit. A, yeah, it's a different. It's a it's a very yeah. It loses. I think it loses a little bit in translation because of the historical context being, especially for an American audience. Like this is stuff that happens hundreds of years before America is even. Right, exactly. So like you know, it's like there is no, there is no, um, there is no contemporary American moment in history with which to 
place this into context. There's no frame of reference in the American. Well, and it's the same problem that Americans have generally with most like like colonial, post-colonial stories. Is like uh, America has this very specific colonial experience in being like we Americans like to imagine themselves as rebels against some over oppressing power. But bear in mind, they are that power. Like you know what I mean? Like they just changed teams. Like, you know, like, whereas, like, most other outside of the Western world exist in a position where, like, oh, yeah, I remember when the Westerners showed up. Right. So it's, it's a, but in general, I would say it's a, in your, in your, um, your point about his themes being sort of these blunt, uh, if not blunt, but, like, very apparent, uh, Thing, him synchronizing the moral or the the end of his character in this film and the point he's making about that with the cataclysmic collapse of the entire Shingen Takeda military persona and history and the immediate hard right turn that that in some ways prefaced for Japanese well, and and the, and yeah, I mean, despite this being somewhat, you know, like you know, it is it is historical fiction. Yeah, we're right, we're right on the cusp. We're within what five within five years, there is no more Sengoku Jidai. It just doesn't exist anymore. It's over. I think it's like because yeah, this is like seventeen seventy. This is supposed to be set in like seven, like because that battle takes place fifteen fifteen seventy five. Fifteen seventy five by sixteen hundred. The Tokugawa Shogunate Sekigahara. is established. Period. Right. So yeah, we're because he's. I was going to say the the somewhat ironic thing is that even Oda does not have long. After no, this no, not, not at all. Yeah. So, it's, um, so basically, so <clears throat> what you're saying is that to a Japanese audience, uh, this film is basically my reaction to Inglorious Bastards. Uh, and and Hitler dying at the end of that movie. Well, I mean, yes and no uh, because like hit, like that one's wrong, right? I mean, that's just like not yeah. how it works. Whereas this one that isn't is, wrong. Yeah. That's the point. Is that like his his determination to fit within the historical events? He doesn't Makes override any history. Bad. Yeah, but it's still uh, kind of cr- it, it is it is also not accurate to what actually happened. But I mean that we know of because you know it's all based on writings. But yeah, I mean, so. Yeah, we all know that Shingen died at the Battle of Nagashino. Uh, what this movie presupposes is, what if he didn't? What if he died three years earlier instead, for some reason? Yeah, bas- basically, <laughs> it yeah. it was all no, just exactly. a pretend guy. It, exactly, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, as far as... Illusion versus reality and the nature of power. Uh, as much as I want to read that stuff into, the fact remains that our our uh, imposter never gets to exercise that power. You know, he's always being reined in. Uh, there are a few moments where he does things that make everyone think, oh, he's a really good imposter. Uh, you know, when he first sits down with the... Uh, uh, in the room with like all the assistants and the guards uh, and they suddenly like they're really relaxed for a moment trying to coach him and then he actually does it and they immediately all have the respect for him that they would have had for the actual lord um, and then the moment 
at the military meeting, the big with everybody, where uh, uh, Shigen's son tries to put him on the spot, and he says, "The mountain does not move," and that doesn't make sense as a military strategy, but everyone loves it, so he wins. Right. <laughs> yep, that's how it works. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just repeat the slogan of our clan, and uh, that'll everyone will love me. <laughs> and yep, that's all it takes. People go, my God, he is. He said him. the thing yeah. we all know. Yeah, he so said if, the thing we all know. So that must mean he is right. If he had done more to really become Sh- Shingen, um, and sort of assert power, you know, that sort of play between illusion and reality might have made more sense. Obviously, this uh, Kurosawa is more interested in uh, the nature of this guy, of loyalty, of, of this thieves loyalty and learning loyalty and dying for it, dying really. for it, Di- dying for loyalty, even to something that no longer even exists. Right. Yeah. And that he knows doesn't exist. Well, uh, and then we, then we're getting into, but then and, we start getting into some really like hardcore samurai themes, right? Which is, right. Fail, like, you Fealty. he has not honorably like participated in this battle. Okay, like I mean, we're getting yeah. into some really weird samurai themes. Where like, bear in mind, one of the things I have to talk about in my class is that like during the middle of the Tokugawa era, okay, um, I believe it is the Tokugawa era. I'm trying now, I'm trying to remember my textbooks that I use, but. Um, like ritualistic suicide became such a a problematic enterprise in that people like various vassals were there were they, it would create a domino effect mm-hmm. where if your master died you were supposed to one of the philosophies was you should also kill yourself okay and it could create domino effects that would wipe out huge sections of clans okay um and so like we're we're getting into a thing where like we're getting into very much a sort of concept of a Japanese ideology where like even though the house fell, he should go with it. Yeah. Like despite not well, actually then, being a member of it, he feels this that weird attachment then, where like I honorably need to go with this house and there we go. How much of this film then, uh and the idea of this film, perhaps a little meta to to the movie itself is this Kurosawa having fidelity to the lost cause of pre-European Japan. Well, and that's, I mean, that's a pretty big theme in a lot of Japanese film. None the, I mean, and it's only mm-hmm. gotten kind of worse, for lack of a better phrase, but like he does. I mean, like he, like that, the sort of rose colored glasses by which people view sort of pre-European uh, interaction, Japan have been a problem in Japan for a long time. And in fact, heavily informed Japan's participation in World War II. Okay. There is a, I remember my, when we saw it in the last samurai in theaters, uh, after we came out, uh, I saw it with my dad. We were all freshmen in college. And after we came out, I was kind of, you know, like, well, that's a bit of a bummer, etc. And he was like, you know, acknowledge that yes, the point of the film was that there was something beautiful and noble and honorable that was irretrievably lost to history for eternity by the grind of Western imperialism. 
however, he was like, on the other hand, you know, women got to vote eventually. Like without this, a lot of the a lot of the caste structure that is maybe not so great. Yeah, I mean, the caste but system was a was a was a a major. You know, when we study it, we have to talk deeply about the fact that like it was. I mean, bear in mind, rice riots were a problem for most of the yeah. Tokugawa shogunate's period of, of power. Was oh, we don't feed people anything. So every so often they decide to try to burn the city down and steal all the rice. Like that's a thing that kept yeah. happening. Like you do, yeah, you know. But like, there's a, there was a lot of people really like, especially within Japan, really go f- hardcore rose colored like glasses with Japanese history. But like, keep in mind also that the whole the whole concept of bushido was mostly was mostly codified during the Tokugawa era when samurais weren't actually a thing anymore. I mean, there was a samurai right. caste, but they weren't doing anything. They basically became government bureaucrats who who would kind of like essentially like have sort of like samurai porn masturbation sessions where they would like, like write down what they imagined just samurai were like, which which they captured some essences of what samurai were about. But keep in mind, samurai were mostly just were just warriors. I mean, they were just a, it was just yeah. a job. It was a thing you did. It was your position in society and it was a job you did and you fought in wars and kind of assigning nobility to it has the same problem we have when we do that to like knights in armor. You know what I mean? Like, okay, still just dudes on horses with swords. Okay. Killing yeah. a lot of yeah. people. Like that's their main job. I mean, I, I, I don't have a problem pay, with it. Yeah. it to a certain extent, but people have a tendency to take it way overboard. And especially when you get into creative works about historical Japan, they are borderline all kind of laughably bad in that way. Uh, yeah. Paved the, for example, paved the way for literacy. Exactly. Although bear in mind, bear in mind, I will, I will, I will say this because this comes up a lot in class. Tokugawa Shogunate at the time that it was by the end of the Tokugawa Shogunate prior to the collapse in the major restoration had one of the highest literary literacy rates in the world at 40 (laughs) percent at the time well no in 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 late 1700s early 1800s 40 percent was fucking amazing was yeah absolutely like that that includes a large percentage of people who were not in the samurai cast could read which is really high and there was a lot of positive things that happened during that time but bear in mind that's post samurai time by the time you get into 1600 to late 1800s, we're post samurai. There are sam- there's a samurai caste. They carry swords, but and they do know how to use them supposedly because they do train them. But we're the, the the wars are over. A battle has not been fought in 200 years, other than just murdering peasants who are trying to steal rice. Well, those peasants. That, the mo- I was going to say the most honorable. Yeah, the, the, the most honorable, honorable activity. <laughs> Known to man. Yeah. I mean, like, bear in mind, like, there were there was a lot of progress made during that during the Tokugawa Shogunate too, and there's, and I think people don't give it a lot of credit either for how much society advanced during that time without Western interaction. Yeah, uh, but bear course, in mind that's post samurai. That is not a time that is yeah. what you would call a samurai era because they are not doing anything other than fucking paperwork. And of course, within the context of this film, uh, Shingen. Uh, Represents tradition, you know, the pre European tradition. Yeah. And he's admittedly a monster, says he's a monster, 
<laughs> when we first meet him. And then the entire premise of his uh, clan is built on a series of escalating lies. <laughs> That's so, true, yeah. So yeah, it's not exactly rose-tinted glasses with the subtext, but no, at the, the and same that's time, the, there's still well, our that's heroes. Always, right? what's made Kurosawa most interesting is is Kurosawa has a nice thin veneer of rose-colored glasses over top of generally monsters. Yeah, like if yeah. you go back and look at some of the other films we've watched, he does not portray. If you watch a lot of Japanese TV, and you compare that to the way Kurosawa portrays samurai. Like, Toshiro Mifune made, did a, an amazing job of making a lot of very vulgar samurai who are not these, yeah. like, beacons of, of traditional Japanese morality. And, and He scratches his butt a lot. It's true. Well, but, but in many ways, he is... And it's not just him, but, I mean, he's the best example of... Even when, even when Kurosawa is comparing Mifune to some sort of more rigid, more... Uh, classical conception of a samurai he does throw in a lot of the samurai not being samurai as samurai-esque as we would want them to be yes and that's a positive thing about what he does with it because it's clear to you like when you watch like kurosawa that he doesn't doesn't quite have the same amount of sort of vaunted respect for the samurai as say your average nhk tv producer i would say he has a consistent specific uh ongoing like you know in, in across his work desire to do the exact opposite and to deconstruct the historical revisionist myth of the samurai at every yeah certain. and i think and yeah exactly but he does it in a very subtle way because he he also knows that he can't sell tickets to hey samurai are bullshit yeah. dudes the the movie right so in, as much as it would be hysterical if he just started reading <laughs> Samurai or bullshit, dude. But in that regard, uh, this movie is an attack at the very foundation of that, right? Right, and and that and I, that and that what makes it very interesting, right? It's like, oh, the main guy isn't even the main guy; he's just a random dude. There goes your your notion that somehow, like, of an of inherited caste associated, like, uh, you know, hereditary. Uh, you know, mastery or whatever, right? Because yeah. this guy pretending to be the Lord is in no way at all the Lord. And so the Lord's son is the one who makes the active decisions that get everybody killed. Right. So the guy who should be the leader now is terrible. <laughs> right. Well, and that and that's the thing is, right, like, yeah, it, it actually would have been really interesting if he decided to not follow Japanese history and, like, somehow, yeah. like, they like oh they just never march into that battle. They, they would still we, we still would have had like twenty years later, and then they're like gone because they I mean, actually they would just have gotten put the kid in charge. They would have just and gotten it leads drowned. to five hundred years of peace. Right, right. Well, I mean, they did, we did, it does lead to two hundred years of peace. Is yeah. the weird thing. I mean, that's that's the weird the, the weird twist of that. Right, is that like they based on what we know they have to lose. Yeah, right? and not just well, to like make the story work, thing. but like. They they have to lose. One thing he says at the beginning forever. also is that you know people are out there killing each other, and the only way to stop it is for me to unify Japan. Uh, well, and the only way to stop it is to unify which, Japan, but it's not him who's going to do it. To be, I was going to say, to be fair, that is the <clears throat> that is what literally the entire 
well, this is maybe an oversimplification, <laughs> but the a huge chunk of the underlying psychology of the Sengoku Jedi, oh, yeah. from a couple of the big guys, is yeah. well, everybody realized that the era or the age of the a billion different warlords ruling different provinces at whim was probably had to end sooner right. or later. But each and every one of them thought, well, the obvious should be the one me. My yeah. is yeah. Is my clan dominates everything. Well, and yeah, and that's and that's the interesting thing is you know I don't spend as much time with my students on like you know pre Tokugawa era, but like there we go through like a lot of we go through a lot of faux like kind of pseudo shogun uh, shoguns like uh, of like um a lot of like okay you know these guys have power right now that uh, the Ashikage and people like that like I forget what they're called exactly, but. Like all these different sort of groups that like kind of throughout for a very long period of Japanese history using the emperor as kind of a figurehead and then they rule kind of secretly in the background. Um, which is, yeah. But the problem the, is, is those keep collapsing. Whole... Like every hundred years they just collapse and then we have another big ass fucking war. And then the people on the periphery, like if you're down where I live now at that time, you just don't give a shit what they're saying at all. You know what I mean? Like, you're so far away from the centers of power. And then we, like, the the goal really became, like, oh, like, the only way this is going to work is if everybody's on board. Not just all the people in and around Kyoto and to- and Edo. Like, it has to be the entire country being on board. Yeah. And, and yeah, so it's, like, and then that the only obvious solution is it's got to be my clan that wins. Which is something that technically did work out for one guy. Yeah. Uh, Tokugawa, who it only worked out for him because Oda and Toyotomi had done ninety. Yeah, and then and then up and and then up and died. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's it's one of those things where there are a lot of points t- towards the end of the Sun Goku Jidai specifically, maybe not like throughout all of it, where like it is crazy how much history is decided. By a margin of about an inch. Yeah, no, yeah, no joke. Yeah, and if 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 even like a few things had been ever so slightly different, it would be wild. It could have been wildly different. Uh, but again, it's one of those, you know, depending on how far down the real politic hole you want to go, which is usually not very far if you have any remote concept of a moral compass. But the concept that you weren't going to get to the years, the 200 years of peace and cultural advancement and literacy and technological advancement and everything else that happens internally during the Shogunate years without the Jedi first. Right. Because in order for the country to have centralized, stabilized governance that allows peacetime cultural prospects, you have to conquer the entire country to stop having a hundred different warlords constantly fighting each other and making life miserable for everybody. Right. And yeah, we get into, you get into a lot of like really kind of, you know, you know, specific event, you know, specific activities that like kind of, you know, for example, like prior to this, prior to the completion of this, like there are no stable road systems. Right. So like, right. Oh, we can't even get a message to somebody way down at the Southern tip of, of uh, like, you know, Kyushu, which is where I live because, Oh, like, how are we going to do that? You're just gonna walk through a shit ton of other people's like, uh, you know, chieftain states. Essentially, no, you're not gonna do that. You know, so. You're gonna be very sneaky. 
and that's yeah, sneakiness is a part of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's very illuminating. I love hearing you guys talk. About yeah, that that's the problem. Is anytime we do a samurai movie, it becomes more like, oh, let's talk about <laughs> Japanese history for for an hour. Oh wait, we forgot well, to this talk one, about the movie. Shit. This one is much uh, more. Well, much more about Japanese oh, history. This one is, being, yeah, that's right, true. It doesn't take no. because they usually they just don't take place in a place in time. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird to see how uh, again going back to his deconstruction stuff. It is sort of amusing to see again the sort of naked contempt uh, Kurosawa had, considering that he's like this entire system for all of its it's he's paradoxically again like the. He has some kind of a, if not nostalgia, he has a sympathy for the honor system, fealty, even to lost causes. Uh, to he has some degree of ideological sympathy for his main character and a lot of the choices there, even if he depicts them as futile and idiotic. Uh, but he also has again seething, naked contempt for the entire system as a whole, because his whole point is. This system was so hidebound that literally you could have some bum come in and take it over and basically have the same <laughs> right, right, and no exactly. one would notice. <laughs> so I, I always appreciated that part of this movie is like, in a sense, this is his meta commentary about the system as a whole, rather than the usual, uh, you know, specific critique of you know depicting a character in a certain way that is the critique. Where this is literally this entire system is so dumb that you could get rid of all of it and have the same and have no real, like, you know, an idiot could run this <laughs> Right, exactly. Everyone's yeah. just get, and everyone's just going to do the same thing anyway. Like a bunch of dummies. Uh, so that part of it I, I've always thought was Oh, funny. wow, this is awesome. I've never heard... Uh, sorry, I, just, I got distracted a little bit, but uh, I've never actually heard this phrase because I, I never took Japanese history in Japan. But, like... Uh, the uh, translation of uh, of a classic Japanese phrase, which is uh, Nobunaga pounds the national rice cake. Hideyoshi needs it, and in the end, Iyasu sits down and eats it. Sorry, as a reference to what we were talking about about before about Iyasu uh, Togawa not yes, doing jack I, shit. I, I think I had heard yeah, never that, heard that specific. I like I've heard that one before, where it's basically like, yeah, he gets the benefit from them doing all of the work. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, Sorry, I got I got distracted by that because I was reading the the Wikipedia a little bit, but uh, and then of course the ending where our lowly thief becomes so obsessed with this lost cause that he is uh, willing willingly throws himself into the watery grave of his fallen leader. Uh, well, and then and, then and you, uh, right, you also get into the fact that in many ways a lot of um. Kurosawa's work, especially post World War II, are commentaries on Japan's behavior during World War II, and that that yeah. very much you get towards the end right there, and you get into that a commentary <sighs> not just on the samurai like concepts of like honor and things like that, but then but more even so on the the modernized uh, you know World War II sort of interpretation of that right like well okay I guess I I'm I'm you know this sort of obsession with an idea you know an ideal dream that so much so that you're going to die for it right so i mean yeah 
Indeed. It's there is a lot of his uh boy, boy aren't wouldn't they be better if these people had the capacity for self examination even a little right, bit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is kind of a you know, an ongoing theme in a lot of his works. The the uh not maybe not the hero, but the guy who is portrayed as if ruefully and uh, sort of morbidly considered to be the voice of reason and wisdom in Seven Samurai is the elder one that survives and tells the young guy, like you know, when he's pointing to the the mound of fallen swords from their guy and the villagers that are already forgetting them, sort of says like you know, thus has it always been and thus will it always be for us, like this is our lot in life to fight hopeless causes for our own, for the sake of our own traditions and brotherhood, but completely unappreciated and forgotten by the wider world and to die futile deaths as a result. Right. Uh, so the, the rare character that does have self-awareness and can understand the, if not hypocrisy, hypocrisy, the paradox or the inherent contradictions of their world is always portrayed as the, the smart guy, which may or may not be just be like a naked, uh, a naked Kurosawa self-insert. Yeah, that's also a possibility, right? It's just that this is the guy that's like he gets it, man. Well, and there, and there's a certain amount of sort of you know that sort of beatnik sort of thing with Kurosawa's work anyway, right? Like it's like man, you just don't get it, but. Uh, yeah, and we—it's true. We don't. Uh, <laughs> if you've been listening to this podcast at all, then you understand that that's accurate. Uh, but it's—it's. Uh, it's, this is a really uh, even by the again the sort of somewhat nebulously grim standards of Kurosawa. I feel like this this one in particular is sort of even a step above and beyond that in its grimness. Uh, at least to me, this has always been one of the like bigger downers, precisely because it just ends on such a yeah. Well, exactly. Uh, it, it it just ends at a, I don't know. It just doesn't. No. It, it's not for me. It's not just this guy we've been following. This this guy we've been following the whole film and whose struggles we have come to identify with, even if thinking they're maybe not the smartest moves, like just literally like you said dies this comically futile death hurling himself into a river alongside a lost cause after watching everything he has been charged with upholding obliterated yeah. uh, in a violent and futile fashion so does not the 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 immediate futility of his uh of of his of his struggle is sort of part of the and, part of the uh, point of this movie, I guess. And he seems to be trying to get to the battle flag, but even raising that battle flag, there's no one left to rally. Right. There's, he is He is so no, yeah. obsessed. Well, I mean, with and me. that's what I'm talking about. That It is a dedication to a, a sort of a, a concept of, like, this is what we stand for. It, I mean, it really gets into the heart of things like, you know, sort of ritualistic suicide and, like, which, you know, paves its way for, paves the way for things like kamikaze, like, it, 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 this idea, like, oh, we don't do this because it's gonna win, 
We do this because we ha- we must. It's our cultural imperative. Yeah. And 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 then and that was always a very dangerous road to walk down because you know it, you it takes itself into this uh, this realm where we, I, I was talking about before where like it, this can get very domino effecty very quickly and very um we're not doing this because we think it's a good idea. We're doing this because we we f- for honor requires that we must. Yeah. Right. It's it's when in it's better to at least we went out fighting sort of a way even if even if that means is, we didn't go out fighting and we just killed ourselves at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It's better I would rather die violently even at my own hand than endure the shame of of living, living through it. Yeah. Diff- of living to see defeat. Well, yeah. guys, uh, instead of living to see defeat or killing ourselves, let's go out while we're still on top and pull this one to a close. Awesome. <laughs> this week we were talking about Kage Musha. Good job. <laughs> or Shadow Warrior. 1980 from Akira Kurosawa. Next week uh, we will be sticking with Japan, uh, but uh, definitely changing pace. As we <laughs> no an- no not at all. <laughs> As we explore another uh, Seijun Suzuki work, uh, we'll be doing back to back films from him, which we haven't done for uh, about three years. I think was the last time we saw Suzuki. Um, but next week it'll be Youth of the Beast, uh, and oh, I'll be perfectly honest. I'm actually looking forward to the string we have coming, if only because we have done about, I think, two months of movies that are all nearly or over three hours apiece. And Suzuki makes 90-minute action films. Yes. (laughs) Well, I I love Suzuki's work, so... And I love Suzuki's work as well. Thank you, Donovan, for joining us this week. Yeah, Uh, thanks for having me. I will... uh tentatively dedicate uh this one to my dad (laughs) oh there you go uh yeah yeah thank you uh and thank you guys for listening Uh, i am as always the adam glass with me as always john patrick otari dorgan and we'll see you next time see everybody bye been listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. 
That's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. We'd appreciate it.